Hi, my name is Kevin McDonald, and I'm declaring my independence. Independence from what? Why, negative thoughts and energy, of course. Chief among them, hate, division, and fear. You see, I know that we're all one, and together we can solve any problem, save our planet and each other. Please, join me as we come together as one and choose a better way to be. So now, let's begin with my independence report. And welcome, everybody, to my independence report. You know, in that opening, um, I talk about the fact that we are all one and that we need to get together to work together if we are ever going to get out of where we are today. And and so, you know, it's it's really fitting that we have the gentleman with us today for the entire hour uh, that he is going to be with us because we are going to talk about some of the darkest in my lifetime, some of the darkest times that we have faced and then uh, then he's dealt with them head on edward tick he's a phd is a nonfiction writer and a poet he's a transformational healer holistic psychotherapist an educator consultant and international journey guide we're going to talk about all of that and his new book which is called coming home in vietnam and uh, Edward, nice to meet you. Nice to see you again. We met the other day. I was fascinated with our discussion then, and I know I'm going to be fascinated with it today. Well, thank you very much for inviting me, Kevin, for having me back. And yes, we had a wonderful warm up the other day, and I'm looking forward to swimming in really important uh, material to share with our audience today. Thank you. No, thank you. You know, it's really sad that. Um, the Vietnam War essentially ended in 1973, but or 75, depending, and uh, that's when we pulled out. Uh, was in 75, and there's a great deal of people in our country. Well, obviously, if you're under the the, the tender age of 45, you don't have any memories of that, and that was prior to your lifetime. Um, and we did. We just we're talking about the things that are going on in our world today that. Those that don't um, uh, listen to history are doomed to repeat it. I probably screwed that up, but uh, we, it's, it's so true. And, uh, but we're going to talk about Vietnam, one of the darkest times of my life and in many um, service members who came back. And I'd like to thank you so much for your work in this field. And, and also, there's an interesting twist about it, too, because we also talk about um, what happened to the Vietnamese people and how they've recovered from all of that. And, and that is, that's, that's a very interesting take because at the end of the day, we are all one and, and, uh, we are no better or no worse than the Vietnamese that we fought for when, I don't know, what, what do we fight for 13 years there? Officially 63 to 75. So we, we call it a 12 year war. That used to be our longest war until these sandbox wars and our new adventures. <laughs> but uh, actually, and the public should know this too, the first name on the Vietnam War wall in DC was killed in 1958. We had advisors there before, and we were never officially at war, it was never a declared war, but we had advisors there before 63. 63 began this serious American buildup and we were, most of our troops were out in 73. The war went on till 75. This is well. 
More Vietnamese have been wounded and killed by the ordinance we left behind since the end of the war, since 75, than Americans were killed in the entire war. So our public doesn't know that either. The Vietnamese are doing well, and we'll talk about that. But people are still being wounded and dying from the weapons we left behind. And uh, children by the tens of thousands are still being born with serious Agent Orange disabilities. So to the American public, if we say a war is over, but we leave our weapons behind and they're still maiming and killing people, is the war over? We haven't fully ended it yet. We haven't helped our veterans heal and come home well enough. And the Vietnamese are doing okay, but they really could use help, our help with these uh, remaining issues. And just for those of you, and I, I will be referencing some history as I understand it, and you, and Doctor, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, but Agent Orange was a uh, defoling agent that they used to try and knock down the jungle so that uh, people couldn't hide as well there. But it also turned out that it was a cancer-causing agent, and many, many, and I don't even know that any statistics have ever been done how many service members came home and subsequently in 10, 20, 30, 40 years died of cancer. Do you have any statistics about that? Uh, I do, and I know Vietnamese, uh, the Vietnamese stories as well. Uh, so start at the beginning. Um, Agent Orange was experimented with in some remote areas in the United States, in the Adirondack Mountains in New York, and in some farmland in the Midwest that was pretty uh, uninhabited. The Food and Drug Administration and our research people determined that the dioxin in Agent Orange, the, the worst killing agent, is, I don't know if everybody remembers, thalidomide. The thalidomide babies, uh, for when I was a child, that thalidomide was a drug given to pregnant women to uh, reduce their... Um, their pregnancy difficulties and their uh, morning sickness. It turned out to cause terrible birth defects. Um, uh, we, uh, these uh, poor people have been around. We see people with tiny shriveled arms coming out of their arm sockets and other disabilities. Well, the, uh, the, the federal government determined that Agent Orange is 100,000 times more toxic than thalidomide. We knew how poisonous it was. It had to go to the desk of President Kennedy to directly approve such a, a deadly destructive poisonous agent, and he did. And so we knew, we yes, knew what he was going to do. We we did, but but uh, we've and I I really I can't speak to what he thought because he's been gone a long time. Or what? What the other folk? You know, they obviously thought that it was the benefits of it were going to outweigh the potential risk because our guys were in the field at the same time that the Vietnamese were in the field, and it was going to affect our fighting man and and their livelihood and how long they lived and the quality of their life in any ways. And so, mm -hmm. you know, those sorts of those are the sorts of things that I you know you're not going to find a lot of that in the history books, unfortunately. No. Right. And you, I really wish that we would readdress some of those things so that the people now could know what what actually went on so that we can, you know, stop it from happening again. Yes. Uh, and here again, history is repeating itself. 
Our military is not using Agent Orange now, but depleted uranium weapons are causing monstrous damage to the land, the people against whom we're warring, and to our veterans coming home with radiation poisoning. I've worked with 20 and 30-year-old uh, veterans who are dying of radiation sickness. Uh, we also have white phosphorus. We have other terrible poisons that our, not only our military, but many around the world continue to use, even though we know the terrible damage it's doing. So the public really needs to know this. Uh, regarding Agent Orange, uh, all of its disabilities are not even recognized yet. Our Navy, which was exposed only in recent years, it's now they're called the Brownwater Navy. People who were in the waters offshore in Vietnam and who were exposed. But it's only like the last two years that they've been recognized as having uh, Agent Orange and other disabilities from the war. So they're finally getting benefits. But ah, the Vietnamese have suffered very much from this. There's approximately 35,000 seriously um, birth defect uh, affected babies born in Vietnam, the serious ones. Uh, it goes through the generations. It lodges in the DNA. It does not leave. It leaves the land because it's water soluble. So except in the hot spots where it was stored, the land and the water finally get clean. It gets washed out to the ocean, but it doesn't leave the human DNA and there's no known way to clean, clear it out. So it's passed through the generations randomly. The Vietnamese, of course, because it's there, have done a lot of research on this. And I've brought back Vietnamese research for American veterans who, are, who put in Agent Orange claims for themselves and their family members and our government has recognized that their disabilities are from Agent Orange, but we can demonstrate it from the Vietnamese research. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk about the Vietnamese a little bit because we were given a not only an incomplete picture of the Vietnamese people and who they are, but in many cases it was a bald-faced lie uh, to try and paint them as the enemy, the evil ones. And that really wasn't the case. They they have been they have to be one of the hardiest people on the planet because they've been they've gone through so much for so long. Tell us about it. Oh yes, I agree with that uh, wholeheartedly. And I am I'll speak from my heart first. Uh, I'd like all of our friends out there to know that what you said is very true. The Vietnamese are extraordinarily hardy, resilient, devoted. They're also extraordinarily compassionate, loving, crea uh, creative, welcoming. Uh, they will tell stories this hour. They utterly forgive us and our veterans, and they urge our veterans to come to Vietnam to get the healing from them that they haven't been able to get here. And we'll talk about that because, as we know, um, I've been leading healing and reconciliation journeys back to Vietnam for 20 years, and I can tell stories about them and also about the healing that occurs and your theme that we are all one. And when these former antagonists get together and share their stories, the depth of oneness of brother and sisterhood they enter into is extraordinarily beautiful and could be an example for the whole world. So that being said, uh, briefly, the history of Vietnam is that 
the Viet people, the dominant ethnic group in Vietnam, originally lived in the area that is northern Vietnam and southern China. During the Bronze Age, the Chinese came down and swallowed up most of the Viet people. The surviving Viet people went south. Vietnam actually, Nam means south in Vietnamese. So Vietnam literally means the country of the southern Viet, Viets. That's all they had left. When they went south, they actually forced out the indigenous people that were there, the Cham people, um, the Khmer people who are now in Cambodia. Uh, and the Vietnamese feel such historical guilt responsibility for that, that they say, 2000 years later, they say, America, you helped correct our karma because we had to experience the suffering that we caused other people thousands of years ago. This is part of their Buddhist perspective. Wow. Okay. So China kept invading and for 1400 years, they occupied and ruled Vietnam. Uh, and the Vietnamese did have several rebellions against them until they finally uh, were forced out. The French came in, I forget the year, 18 something. Uh, and the French were there and made it their colony for 200 years. We support, um, during World War II, the Vietnamese were our allies. The, uh, they were allied with us against the Japanese and they were fighting hard on our side. At the end of World War II, they requested their independence. They declared their independence. Uh, they thought the West and especially the United States would support it because they had been our allies. But instead, France said, we want our colony back. And so we supported France in taking Vietnam back. And here's another secret of the wars that uh, the public doesn't know. The very oldest Vietnam veterans I've ever worked with were also World War II Navy veterans, who instead of coming home, uh, shipped French supplies and uh, personnel to Vietnam to, to transport them there to restart their colonial war. So. The French continued that war. Um, the Vietnamese, the United Nations brokered uh, an election that would have united Vietnam. We knew that Ho Chi Minh would win that election and be president of Vietnam. And so we did not respect that election. And that's when the country was divided north and south. Uh, Ho Chi Minh was the president of the north, obviously. Uh, and then we took up where the French left off. Not only that, we paid 90% of the French bill for their war. Then it became our war for 12 years and more, as we've been saying. So Vietnam has been at war for its freedom and independence for over 2,000 years, with just short breaks when they were independent. They wanted to ally with us in the West. In fact, the first paragraph of their Declaration of Independence is ours. They, they respected it so much that they just lifted it and, and declared their independence the way we did. And so now, now, Doctor, I gotta ask you, because and, and you brought up Ho Chi Minh, and in, in the history books, or when I was growing up, and they were justifying the war that we were in between the North and the South, 
they painted Ho Chi Minh as a hardline communist that was uh, aligned with with Russia and uh, and China, and that he wanted to eradicate the fr- the the, the freedom loving people of the South. But that was not entirely true, was it? No, no, that's really a twisted and uh, misinterpretation of history. Ho Chi Minh first asked for support from the United States and the West for their freedom. When he was not given that and not given any support, and instead the French came back uh, with our money and our help, he had he felt he had no choice but to apply uh, appeal to the Eastern Bloc and to the Communist Bloc for help. He was a fierce nationalist. Communism for him was a tool to help supply and support his country against uh, the imperialist uh, invasions from the West. He didn't want to do it, but he had to. Um, communi- and then there's, it's also a little more uh, complicated. Vietnamese is uh, nominally communist, of course, we know that. Vietnam has been a communal society for thousands of years. Communism is much, and a Confucian society. Communalism and Confucianism are both what you teach, Kevin, how people get along, how we all realize we're all one, and how we run our societies so that everybody's taken care of and we share the resources. Communalism and Confucianism are that way. Communism, therefore, uh, was an easy ideological step for them because in its ideals, communism is generous and takes care of everybody. It's not the reality. It's not what happened, of course, with Russia and China. But Ho Chi Minh was a nationalist and an idealist who was just using it to um, support his country and During his reign, his lifetime, he was very good at playing Russia and China against each other. Ah, you want me to, because they were, they're feuding. Who's the big communist giant? Exactly. Uh, They call him Uncle Ho in Vietnam. (laughs) And they love him very much. But he was really good at playing the two against each other. I'll ally with you if you give me these weapons. Well, no, I'll ally with you. So he kept his country supplied. And he did have to declare, of course, communist ideology um, to keep that alliance. But he really wanted, he was a nationalist who wanted his country free and all his people taken care of. You know, I think that um, we we need to get rid of some of the labels that, that we have used about certain things in the past. Because I'm for any society that takes care of each other. I'm against any society that divides its people one versus the other. Um, I'm against a society where 16 million children go to bed hungry and we're paying a quarterback from the Seattle Seahawks $30 million a year. Uh, So from that standpoint, you know, I don't care if you call it communism, socialism, uh, dogism, whatever ism you want to call it. If we we as a people need to understand that we're all one and we need to take care of each other, and any society that does that, I think over time and gosh, uh, Vietnam has has been around a lot longer than we have, and uh, and yes. they're liable to be there a lot longer because they take care of each other and they love each other. Yes, and 
I would like to take every American to Vietnam because they, they also take care of us and they love us. And um, they take care of our veterans and love them far more than they most of them have experienced for most Americans. I have an adopted daughter in Vietnam jumping in. Uh, I met her when she was in college uh, and uh, she came to, we met at some cultural events. While she was in college, she set up a friendship society between Vietnamese college students and American war veterans. They, oh, wow. want, they wanted to get to know us and especially our veterans. They unlike Americans, they wanna know the Americans war stories. They've watched, their, their English is good. Not only they start, uh, everybody starts learning English in third grade there now, but beyond that, they learn their English by on the internet, watching our Vietnam War movies and listening to 60s music. So <laughs> Scouts Honor, they sing Where Have All the Flowers Gone? A chorus of young Vietnamese, uh, young adults will surround our veterans, say, we're so glad you, you're here. We, we're going to heal you with our love and we want to serenade you. And then they sing our old 60s songs. Uh, <laughs> I, yeah, I, and tough, crusty veterans break down in tears over that. <laughs> Dr. Edward, I got I to gotta tell you a quick story. Back in 2003, I was doing positive talk radio on KKNW uh, two hours a day, five days a week. And it was right during the time that uh, uh, George Bush decided that we needed to go invade uh, Iraq. And so the Iraq war started and I went and got some 19 or some, some sixties war, some Vietnam uh, war protest songs. And we have, you know, we had what we would call music bumps where we would go in and out of breaks with music bumps. And so I, I started playing some of the night and that was one of the songs. War was another one. War. Ah, who need, you know, and what is it good for? Absolutely nothing. Yeah. <laughs> and I started getting hate mail. I'm not surprised. I'm sorry, but not surprised. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was really was. It was really was something because it was like, no, don't you guys understand that war doesn't accomplish anything? As it turned out, that every the whole premise of the war was based upon a lie and a fallacy anyway. Um, and and how many people died because of 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 something that wasn't true? Yeah, and that, you know, and that and that continues. We continue to repeat that 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 thing over and over again and uh, yes, we do. Uh, rem of course uh, we both remember the famous uh, country joe and the fish song I, yes indeed yeah. right okay um they're singing that they were singing that in afghanistan they just changed the word vietnam to afghanistan one two three what are we fighting for don't ask me i don't give a damn next stop is afghanistan <laughs> what are we doing <laughs> Yeah, I I'll never forget. I was in high school with with uh, uh, Country Joe, and uh, not in, I. He was out there, and and then he had a song that that didn't make it to the airways very much. It was called "Give Me an F, F, Give Me," right. a, and yeah, and then yeah. that's that led into that song, and uh, um, it right. it was it was a different time, and we were it was, uh, true confessions. I was at Woodstock when he performed that live. Oh, okay. half a million people joining in the cheer. <laughs> well, but you know, it was important catharsis for the generation. 
We yes. were all in so much pain and frustration and fear that uh, you know, Woodstock, you know, three days of peace and music, it was called that, but we needed to get gather. We needed each other's support. We needed a large expression of the anguish of the country. And that's what was going on. And it's it's uh, continuing today, unfortunately. Um, yeah. So, but listen, let's talk about your book coming home in Vietnam. You, yes, um, that is a it's a book of poetry, correct? Yes. Correct. Just tell us how it came to be. <sighs> um, well, as you know, and we've shared with the audience, uh, I'm most of my uh, contribution as a writer is as a nonfiction writer, especially on these topics. So. My books, War in the Soul and Warrior's Return, have been influential and helpful in, uh, it, to our military and veterans in how to heal and come home. Uh, I have, I'm profoundly committed to doing everything truly necessary and ethical and psycho-spiritually healthy um, to help people heal and come home from war or from other traumas, disasters, violence. Uh, so I just, back in the, in the 1990s, I, I learned so much about Vietnam and the war working with our veterans. And though I'm not a veteran, I was, I'm adopted in the brotherhood and uh, initiated uh, in a different way, initiated through the work and through, uh, through the veteran work. So um, back then, I determined that perhaps going back to Vietnam, encountering the other, turning the other from enemy into friend, visiting, quote unquote, the scenes of the crime, uh, which very often happens, uh, is helpful for trauma survivors. I mean, I, I travel, for example, uh, with accident victims. I, we travel to the site of the accident. And... Um, we do grieving and ritual ceremony there to overcome the, the conditioned terror that happened from that place and that accident. So I thought the same thing could be helpful uh, regarding Vietnam. I didn't know the Vietnamese people yet. Um, so I, I really didn't know how they would respond, but uh, I also was quite aware that we don't know their stories. And we don't know the aftermath of the war from their side of the world. So I really wanted to know, learn and know that also. And since people are angry about this, but we didn't win that war, we didn't defeat the Vietnamese, who are these people who could survive a 12-year monstrous war like we, like we fought with our massive uh, destructive technology and still come through okay? and um and move on and recover so i really wanted to know them and i wanted to find the most helpful um healing practices for our our veterans so with all that in mind i began leading healing journeys to vietnam in 2000 and so i i've been there every year up until the pandemic stopped travel looking forward to starting again so i've been there 19 times uh this also reveals something, some of what happened to um, those of us who didn't serve then. Uh, veterans, uh, well, the, the military uh, served one year tour of duty in country. 
Most people did a year or less if they could get out or if they were wounded. Some people did a second tour, a, a few did even more. I really wanted to have my year in country. Um, it's part of my healing and my reconciliation as a non-veteran to do to this work. So by now I've been in Vietnam for about a year and a half in total with 19 trips. Good for you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Okay. All that said, um, I've been writing poetry since I was a kid. Um, the way reason most people write poetry to express the beauty of the world, to explore ourselves, to give ourselves a introspection and spiritual strength. Um, and so I've, I've been writing poetry my whole life and I keep very intensive journals as I travel. So I've got volumes of notes from Vietnam with their stories, with their history. And I found myself writing poetry as I travel through Vietnam all these 20 years. This past year when I couldn't travel to two years, when I, since I couldn't travel to Vietnam any uh, these years, I've stayed in contact and I've continued to do charity work with them, raising money here and sending it over there for charity projects. But I thought, oh, well, I can travel to Vietnam by going through my journals and recovering all my poetry. And what do I have? Well, I have 20 years of poetry, <laughs> all about these stories of our veteran stories, the Vietnamese stories, uh, encounters with their land and their culture, and my own stories of traveling through there. So I spent the pandemic putting it all together into a single volume. So Coming Home in Vietnam is a 20-year collection of poetry that I wrote while traveling through Vietnam and coming home and reflecting on it. And it tells all of these stories, GI stories, Vietnamese stories, their culture, their history, my own experiences there. Uh, and um, it's really a, a very full and rich uh, volume. People could learn a lot from it. And we, especially, we, of course, our veterans. We, we uh, are veterans and, and, and are non-veterans. We need to understand what happened then and to experience healing and then to talk to people about what what they experienced during that time. Uh, because you got to remember, if you're, if you're too young to remember, 58,000 Americans were killed in that war. Several hundred thousand were wounded and several million Vietnamese died in, the, in that 12 year period. And it was a horrific time for them and for and for the country. Um, it led to things like Kent State. It led to other other uh, catastrophes here. And uh, and so your poetry, I and you you did it and you wrote it with the intent and put it out there with the intent of healing people, didn't you? Yes, I did. I did. Uh, poetry. <clears throat> I always thought I should write a book about this subject because it is so uh, important, urgent. We need to know these stories. We need to know the Vietnamese stories and these can bring healing to all of us. So uh, I thought I would write another nonfiction book, but poetry is uh, expresses the heart and the soul. It's visceral. We feel it um, when, we're, when it's a good poem, we really, Feel it in our hearts and on our bodies, and it gives us chills. So, uh, so poetry, writing poetry itself, uh, writing the poetry and sharing poetry is part of the healing process. In addition to that, 
Warriors have been using and writing poetry for thousands of years. The very first book we have is the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is a war epic from ancient Sumeria, 4,000 years old. Um, the Greek tragedies, all the, uh, the Greek, the main, the famous uh, playwrights who invented Greek tragedy were all combat veterans. They wrote the tragedies and performed them as a, a massive um, healing practice for ancient Athens, where everybody came to the theater and everybody was a veteran and everybody was um, grieving and, and crying and achieving catharsis together. Among the samurai warriors of Japan, they gave us some of the greatest haiku poets and landscape painters. The warrior traditions of the world teach that warriors should be given art forms to balance the killing arts. They need the healing, the expressive arts. Our Native American peoples, um, brothers and sisters, of course, they use the arts exclusive, extensively, dance and painting their teepees and painting their shields and, and building their weapons and having their spirit animals. They used all of, uh, they used the arts extensively for their, uh, to prepare to go into conflict, to give themselves spiritual strength while they're in conflict, and especially to heal afterwards. So uh, I use poetry in the arts that way. The Vietnamese are also very literate people. You ask who's a poet in Vietnam, everybody raises their hand. <laughs> it's a, I am, I am, I am. So one of the, well, one of the many healing activities we do in Vietnam is I have, doesn't matter if they write well or not, it's just, just use poetry to express what's in your heart. Start getting it out of your system. Cleanse your system, put it into words, use poetry and the other art forms for catharsis, getting out the old toxic emotions. And so I have our veterans write poetry. Some of them do already, but if they don't, doesn't matter. Just write what's in you. Um, and in Vietnam, we get together, Vietnamese veterans and our veterans get together and we have poetry readings in both languages. We have the poems translated into the other language and scouts on it within a few minutes, within two or three poems. The veterans of both sides who at the beginning, like they sit on opposite sides of the circle. After two or three poems, they're jumping out of their seats and saying, that man's poem is mine. That warrior's story is mine. I need to read his poem in my language. And they jump out of the seat. They take the seat next to their new brother. They put their arms around each other and they read each other's poems. And tears come. And they affirm this is all of our story together. And as one of the, one Viet Cong veterans uh, said to our group, uh, from now on and forevermore, Vietnamese and American veterans must be the lips and the tongue of the same mouth telling the world the same story. And with poetry and these other efforts, uh, we moved in that direction. It seems to me, and you would know because you, you've you led journeys. By the way, we're talking with uh, Dr. Edward Tick, T-I-C-K. You can go to edwardtick.com to get, get his biography and look at all of his books. I highly recommend that you do that because um, 
one of the things that I know that you've discovered because you're taking veterans back to Vietnam, American veterans back there to for a a, a mission of discovery yes. and rediscovery. And what I and tell me if I'm wrong, but I suspect that what you find is that that is one of the best ways to heal uh, the the hurt and the PTSD and the and all of the all of the memories that they have. Um, that it can be a real healing experience talking to other people from the other side that surprisingly enough and, and their common experiences. Has that been your experience? Absolutely. Uh, Scouts honor uh, by now with 19 journeys and taking between uh, various, but 10 to 20 people, half of them veterans. So I've taken by now several hundred veterans to Vietnam uh, and war widows and orphans of veterans or children of disabled veterans who can't travel. In almost every case, they achieve more healing in the two and a half or three weeks that were in Vietnam than they've achieved in 30 or 40 or 50 years of trying since the war. The only time that hasn't been the case have been a couple of times when the veterans had other pathologies in addition to post-traumatic stress disorder. A couple had you know, really horrific, abusive childhoods. So Vietnam, we can clear up the wartime PTSD, but the, the terrible childhood abuse and wounding is still there. So there's that. And with all respect to this warrior, uh, one time one of our uh, veterans went back because he had Agent Orange diseases and his children did, and he just wanted to be there researching the impact of Agent Orange, which we did. Uh, but before we left, he said, uh, I'm an alcoholic and I ain't giving that up no matter how much healing you give me. <laughs> <laughs> well, that that was a conscious choice that he made on. on, on it was, yeah. Yeah. So he, did, he didn't get soused while we were there. He was respectful, but um, he really wasn't looking for deeper healing. He really wanted to just help his family with Agent Orange disability. But besides a few examples like that, the, the degree of healing is really extraordinary. How about I read a poem and tell the healing story behind it to demonstrate to our friends out there? I was going to suggest, hey, how about you read a poem? <laughs> <laughs> Kevin, what a good idea. <laughs> right, thank you very much. I'm full of them. So, you no, I, I, would love to, I would love to hear one, please. Okay. Thank you. Um, I'm going to read one of the opening poems in the book and also tell the backstory to really fully and deeply answer your good question about what kind of healing happens there, how deep and comprehensive can it go, and can our veterans really restore their lives through these efforts. So this poem is called Praying, and I want to tell the backstory. Oh, I'll say this. Many of the, my poems are written in first person, whether it's me or a veteran or a Vietnamese person, I still use I to make it really personal. And also, again, joining with you and your philosophy, we are all one. So everybody's story is all of our stories. And we need to be in the collective. It's part of the grand human family. Yes. So this is, uh, this is about a veteran, but it's in first person. All right. So this veteran. Um, he was a veteran from uh, Massachusetts, um, living in the countryside out, uh, 
about an hour east west of Boston. Uh, and of course, living in the country, as so many veterans do, to keep his stress down, feel safer. On his 19th birthday in Vietnam, he was in a horrible firefight in which uh, he and his unit survived a suicide attack by who knows how many Vietnamese, but they, they killed 300 enemy soldiers. Oh. And of course, many of his comrades were injured or, or killed as well. The end of the battle, they dug a mass grave and pushed all of those Vietnamese bodies into the, that one grave. He survived. He came home. For decades, he had been feeling very guilty about that and having nightmares of the dead crying to him from inside the earth. Really? Yeah. Yeah. He wanted to resolve those and ordinary psychotherapy didn't do it. Talking about it didn't do it. Um, taking medications to kill nightmares doesn't heal anything. It might suppress some symptoms, but doesn't bring healing. He really wanted it over. So he decided to go back to Vietnam with me and we would search for this battle site and this mass grave and give it back to the Vietnamese people. We found it and we did. So I'm gonna stop there and read the poem and then tell the rest of the story. It's a two stanza poem. The first stanza is him on his 19th birthday in this battle. The second stanza is him when we went back and returned the grave to the Vietnamese people. And then I'll tell you the aftermath. So this is called praying. <clears throat> Never in my life did I pray so hard as that day at the smoking bottom of this mountain among giant boulders and fallen trees when the enemy overran our wire and sprouted like berserk rice stalks no farther away than the length of my rifle and our muzzle holes became God's wrathful eyes. That's his 19th birthday. Now we go back. Never in my life did I pray so hard until today on the cloud-crowned top of this mountain. Among smiling statues and wafting incense, when their children took my hands and called me uncle, and monks bowed to me as if I were a saint. And I embraced their dead as my true brothers. And God's loving eyes gazed through my torn and mending heart. There we were. We found the gravesite. The Vietnamese villagers just showed up spontaneously around us. We told them why we were there. We showed them the, the grave. Our vet thought he was frightened he was going to be arrested and thrown in prison. Thank you for bringing our ancestors back to us, they said. You returned our fathers. You returned our grandfathers. You brought their souls home. Now we can all be in peace. Please hold my baby and bless my baby. You gave him his great-grandfather back. They really treated him like a saint, like a village hero. They loved him to pieces for, not to pieces, they loved him to wholeness. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so since then, 
with, uh, when we went together, he's been back to Vietnam on his own several times. He fell in love with a Vietnamese woman. They got married. They now, well, the pandemic made, stopped it for a while, but until the pandemic, they were living in both countries. And he was supporting her extended family in Vietnam, as well as having a Vietnamese American family here. So now those two families have become one and they're truly Vietnamese American because they belong to both countries. Both families with both ethnic backgrounds belong to both countries and are peaceful and, and loving um, in both places. It's beautiful. And, uh, and his nightmares are gone. Once he returned, the Vietnamese teach this also. This is another perspective that I've learned and I use. The Vietnamese teach other spiritual traditions as well, that when we're having nightmares of people who are gone, who are on the other side, it's not a, it's not a pathology. It's not something's wrong with your brain. And it's from the spiritual perspective, those are the souls on the other side trying to contact us. They want something from us. And so, as it turned out in this case, and the Vietnamese interpretation proved to be true for our veteran. These souls wanted to go home, and the Vietnamese families were waiting for the bodies to be recovered. And in Vietnam, they do believe that the soul wanders unless it gets its prop the body gets its proper tomb. So the people were able to give the tombs to take the bodies back to re recover uh, their family heritage. And our veteran is not a criminal for taking life. He's a saint for returning the souls. And his psyche is at peace. The nightmares went away. No meds. <laughs> you know, you know Edward, I have, I have to, to say, say, you, you are, are a very, very interesting man. man in that that it's, it's very, very emotional for you. Yes. And you, and you really mean what you feel when you're talking about this entire entire mission that you're on and the passion that you have around it. I applaud you. And by the way, we have to talk about the Greek people and we have to talk about what you do there and the totality of your work. We're not going to have time today. So will you come back and talk to me again? Oh, I'd be honored to, Kevin. And uh, feel free to call me just Ed. It's easy. Okay. <laughs> I appreciate the respect, and that's all good. When people need doctor or doc, they can use it. But I'm okay being Ed because just as you teach, we're all one. We're all in this together. And the, the earlier that we learn that and the earlier that we teach that, the better off that we'll be. And, and unfortunately, in this country, we've got a long way to go before we can begin to get there. But uh, you're making a difference. Absolutely. And, uh, Thank you. The kind of programs you run and the guests you have, you're, this is also making a difference. I hope so. And they're going to be up for a long time. So Good. if you if you want to uh, go get the book, Coming Home in Vietnam, every veteran, I believe, every veteran, every relative of a veteran, if you have an Uncle Tommy and you never could figure out why Uncle Tommy did what Uncle Tommy did, uh, and he was a veteran in Vietnam, you need to get these poems because they'll shed some light for you on what actually happened to these guys. Because remember, the gentleman that you were just talking about, he was friggin' 19 years old. He was barely out of diapers right. when, when, when he was shooting other people 
um, in a foreign a land 10,000 miles away and uh, and didn't get the support that he needed there or when he came back here. 19 years old. That's just that's to, to me, that's unconscionable that we do that to our kids. But we do. We do. Yes, we it's, do. And it is unconscionable. Uh, we know the brain doesn't uh, is continuing to develop into our mid 20s. We know that people's morality is still forming. It's not complete. We know people uh, at that age don't know, the, uh, can't even imagine the consequences of their actions. They don't think that way yet. So really, you, what you said is right. We're sending people who are barely, no offense to our young adults, but barely out of diapers um, into these hideous conditions to do things nobody should ever have to do. And of course, it's going to have this disastrous impact on their psyches. Well, yeah, and and just as as an aside, I'm 64. I'm closer to being back in the diapers than they are leaving diapers. Uh, me too. I'm 71, brother. <laughs> and I'm well, sure you're singing the old Beatles song to yourself all the time now, right? When I'm 64. Oh, of course. That's yes, yes, indeed. That's my one of my one of my favorites. Now, my brother uh, passed away 18 months ago, oh, and and it, he had stage four lung cancer. And oh. and uh, are you familiar with the Beatles song uh, "In My Life"? Oh, sure. And so he, yeah. the, the day before he died, I played that for him, oh. and it had it, it oh. had an impact. So, a, oh, that's beautiful. Thank you for that story. And so, a good so, way to help your beloved brother cross over. Yes. Let him know how important he was to you. Thank you. Exactly. You, you're, you're, I, I really love talking to you. You are a historian of note. Uh, you are a counselor of note, a psychotherapist, an educator, a, a consultant, an international journey guy. You do, you, and you're an author and you're a poet. You do it all. And, and, uh, and you do it with a reason, with a cause and, yes. uh, and to try and help people understand a little bit better. And I, I really appreciate you. I appreciate that. Thank you very much. Um, I think we both know, and some of the public knows that uh, a me, uh, there has been much writing and teaching in recent years about the need for a meaning-driven life, a purpose-driven life. And a lot of our uh, American brothers and sisters don't feel very purposeful in their work or with their, uh, their contributions to the world, and they suffer from that. Thoreau, um, yeah, Thoreau was right. Uh, the masses live in lives of quiet desperation. When we have a mission, when we have a purpose, uh, that desperation, it's hard work, but the desperation goes away. And I'm happy that I don't suffer that particular ailment. I've got a very <laughs> purposeful life. Well, you know, and before the show started, we were talking about there's a distinct difference between um, us growing up and, and folks in their 40s and 30s and then folks that are coming up today uh, post 9-11. Yes. Um, and the next time you're on, I'd love to go down that road with you to talk about how the kids are are, are changing. They don't have the hope. They don't have the inherent belief that they are going to be okay, that it's going to, they've got global warming. They've got, uh, it's just a myriad of things that, that are going on. So I'd like to talk to you about that. Uh, that be, happy that to share fun. that. It's very, very important to know what our children, teens and 20 somethings are going through and the different form of consciousness that they're developing because 
of growing up in these contemporary conditions. Yeah. Well, you know, what's interesting is that also before we started, you talked about the Cuban Missile Crisis and you were old enough to remember having to hide under your desk because uh, as a drill, because they were saying, "Okay, if we get a nuclear bomb, we're going to all hide under our desks like that was going to save you much. Mm -hmm. But now history again is repeating itself because now we've got kids that are that are learning about uh how to defend themselves against a uh, rogue gunman in a school right. they're, yes they're doing this same kind uh, of thing. and i would argue that that's even more upsetting and threatening to them because it's your neighbor who might be breaking into the school and as frightened as we were during the cuban missile crisis and the cold war then uh our schools were relative well there were fight, there was fight, and there was racial uh, tension and violence, but not like this. Nobody charging into the schools and and killing people. So, uh, and this is another reason our veterans suffer, because they expected if they went to war for our country, they would be respected, supported, um, welcomed back, really welcomed back when they came home. But they weren't, and that was a betrayal. It's worse being betrayed by your own country people than going to war fighting somebody who's been declared an enemy. And our children are fearing their neighbors and we're all fearing going to the grocery store now. So this is a very, very morally damaging condition that our country's in now. I couldn't agree more. We've been talking with Dr. Edward Eddie Tick and... uh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I appreciate having you here, sir. Go to his website, please, edwardtick.com, and find out more about the work that he's doing. I just I can't tell you um, how important it is for people who used to be enemies to get together and, uh, and decide that we're not what we thought we were and that we, we can do so much better. And so is there anything I have to go, but is there anything that you'd like to add before we go? Yeah. Um, We want our friends out there to know uh, that truly understanding each other across vast differences and making peace is possible. Becoming friends instead of uh, transforming enemy into deep abiding friendship is possible. And Post-traumatic stress disorder and moral injury don't have to be lifelong chronic disabling conditions with these kinds of efforts. Uh, they, those conditions can really be healed and our people can come home. And Susan says what I wholeheartedly agree. Beautiful work that you're doing and uh, please keep it up. And I'm going to have, I need to have you back on the show. I just, I, I just got to tell you that. So, so be looking for that. We're going to rebook uh, Dr. Edward and uh, he's going to come back on. We're going to talk about more stuff because his life is chock full of his bio was too long to read. It would have taken the whole show. So I, I, (laughs) (laughs) this is much better. My friend, the exchange we have, the energy and the wisdom that we share is what's important. Thank you. Thank you. And you, you have a wonderful day. And, and, uh, I, I, I just got to tell you, thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for enjoying this episode all the way to the end. 
Please give us a like and subscribe to this channel. This has been a production of KMmedia.pro. Please visit our website, oddly enough, named KMmedia.pro, for more details about us and our mission, which is to provide great, positive programming designed to inspire us all. I'm Kevin McDonald, and I'm proud of these shows, and I truly hope that you'll like them and share them with friends and family. So on behalf of our entire team, remember, be kind to each other, because each other's all we've got. We'll see you next time.